Welcome to the Shoreline Maritime Risk Podcast. In each episode, we'll look at real-time case studies, current events, and speak to the experts dealing with critical risks at sea. What really happens when a crisis strikes at sea? And what can you do to protect your ship? Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Nick Maddalena, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the next in the series of Shoreline's Maritime Risk Podcasts. This one is entitled Maritime Sanctions, the Risks of Non-Compliance to Shipowners. I'd also like to welcome my two guests today, Mike Salthouse, who is Global Claims Director at North Group, and Ron Crean, who leads Global Energy, Maritime and Insurance at Wynwood, the Maritime AI business. So, gentlemen, there is no doubt that the sanctions compliance landscape has become a lot more complicated for ship owners and operators over the last couple of years. Perhaps I could begin by asking Mike to provide us with an overview of how this has come about and how the UN Security Council, OFAC, OFSEA and the EU play their part in the maritime sanctions compliance landscape. Thanks, Nick, for that. I think in the maritime context, the modern sanctions landscape really goes back to the introduction of CISADA in 2010 and the targeting not just of the ship owner, but auxiliary financial and other services, so insurers, banks, flag, class, all of which enable a vessel to continue to trade. And very quickly, everybody had to take sanctions very seriously because the penalties for breach in very general terms meant exclusion from US financial markets upon which the maritime industry depends. The European Union, UK, uh, quickly followed suit with their own measures, again, targeting those ancillary maritime services as well as the, the primary sanctions breaker. And the net effect was phenomenally effective in, in terms of a sanctions program. So if you look at the, the actual stats, between 2011 and 2016, Iranian oil output dropped from about 2.5 million barrels per day to about a million barrels per day. And of that million, most of those were permitted transactions under the US NDAA waiver program. So undoubtedly, the success of that Iran sanctions program between 2011 and 2016 resulted in the JCPOA, which at the time was viewed as a huge foreign policy success. Now, unsurprisingly, governments then sought to replicate the success of that program in other areas of tension. And we saw sanctions programs led by the UN targeting trade to the DPRK, a joint EU-US program targeting the Assad regime in Syria, and the US program targeting the Maduro administration in Venezuela. And the most striking things about these programs and the reason why they've been so effective has been the way in which the US enforces those sanctions against non-US parties. And, and that action takes two forms. Significant fines for those that do business in the US, so some of the big European banks like BNP, uh, Standard Chartered and the like, and who, who are subject because of their operations in the US to US primary jurisdiction, and then designation, and designation often without warning for those that operate outside the scope of US territorial jurisdiction. And the consequences of designation and the size of the fines have changed behaviours and forced businesses to take note. And whilst the majority of such enforcement actions target the high-risk jurisdictions of Iran, Syria, DPRK and Venezuela, compliance teams now have to pay much greater attention to the less high-profile sanctions areas, which number in the high 20s. So if you look at the current US and EU sanctions programs, about 20, 20 or so countries where there are 
trade restrictions in force, and we all have to pay attention to those as well as the sort of more high profile areas. So the result um, is that today sanctions are a fact of life, and I think it's likely that they will remain so for the foreseeable future. I don't really see much change in the landscape over the next few years. So it certainly certainly sounds very uh, complicated and, and onerous. That's really fascinating. So from your perspective, Ron, and from the perspective of Winwood as, as a provider of maritime data analytics to assist ship owners, which set of advisories, if that's not too much of a steer, which set of advisories is most onerous in your opinion? Thanks, Nick. So I think it's changed a lot over the last 10 years. And I think it consistently in terms of scope and, and reach and impact, I think it's got to be OFAC in the US in terms of what they've said between last year and this year, I think has changed the game a lot. There was obviously three advisories last year and they were increasingly difficult for companies to, to keep up with, particularly ship owners and insurance and energy businesses, because you set your business up to operate in a certain way and then that works and then the landscape changes and then you've got to react to it. So you've got to basically build a dynamic approach to risk and that's, that's not easy to do. I think in terms of the, the your question about why is that in terms of which ones are the most onerous, that what, why are they the most onerous? I think it's the addition of complexity in, in the May advisory that came out this year. There was a lot of consultation with the industry, particularly in insurance and energy to an extent. But I'm not sure if people realize the complexity of, of delivering what they were asking for because it's way beyond the best people in the company. There's fantastic amount of depth and, and expertise across insurance and shipping. And, but to be honest, it, it's almost not enough because it's, it's pushing the people in the industry to their limits in terms of what can you get done with what you have and what else do you need in order to perform at the level that you expect to perform at. And as of this year, so 2020, I think, has, has changed the game because suddenly it's not enough anymore to just rely on, is it on a list, yes or no? It's beyond that. It's trying to, it's almost military intelligence because you're looking at things like changing typologies and how criminals do the things they do. And they're obviously a tiny percentage of the world. So it's basically trying to pick out a needle in a haystack. So I think... It's the complexity, I'd say, is the, is the biggest issue and how you use technology to do the heavy lifting that that complexity asks for. So if I can just come back to Mike, you mentioned that what really brought this to the fore and, and made it significant in everybody's minds was the US enforcement against non-US banks to begin with. What, from your perspective, what do you see as the single biggest risk to the ship owner in, in non-compliance of the OFAC advisories? Yeah, thanks. I think undoubtedly the, the single biggest risk is designation, and not just of the ship-owning company and the vessel, but of the entire management company. And this is because that designation has the effect of depriving the owner and a manager of income. It deprives them. It means that the ships are, uh, are inoperable. They lose their flag, they lose their class, they lose their insurance. They automatically default on any mortgage loan agreements. There's a wonderful phrase that a US lawyer acquaintance of mine uses, which is civil death. And I think that just about sums it up. 
And unless that designation is lifted quickly, the ship owner and the manager will simply go out of business. I would though say that, it, that the designation is the most obvious and most visible measure, but underneath that is the sheer stigma of sanctions. And that is such that even an unwitting and remote association with a sanctions breaking activity, if it becomes public, is sufficient to cause severe commercial harm with banks, class flag insurers, all of us seeking clarification or, or even distancing themselves from a vessel and its owning company. And that's quite troubling because in many cases, the ship owner will have had measures in place to avoid breaking sanctions and then is not presented with any sort of proper opportunity to address the allegations that are being made about its conduct, which are now out in the public domain and causing ports, everybody to, to refuse to deal with that particular vessel. Designation certainly the worst, but I wouldn't underestimate just how disruptive mere association with sanctions breaking can be to a modern day operator. Understood. So li listening to that carefully, obviously the most important thing is to ensure that the ship owner, the ship operator, doesn't end up on a sanctions list or is designated. So Ron, what digital tools have, have Winwood developed which are currently available to owners to assist with screening and monitoring counterparties? And vessel activity and, and how effective are they in the big scheme of things? Yeah, I think it comes down to a, a kind of a continuum. If you think of a continuum, and on the left-hand side of the continuum, you've got you know a data approach, data publisher approach, where you know I mentioned earlier, is it on a list, yes or no? And that's pretty straightforward. And to be honest, I've been looking at that for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years or something. And that aspect of it hasn't really changed. And it's still important, you still need to know if it is on a list or not. But I think it's, it's developed beyond that now. And that's certainly a building block, but it's not enough. And I think now it's more important to be able to see on a basic level, you want to be able to see some sort of color code to flag the fact that something's changed. We're looking at, I don't know, 97,000 ships a day. And across those 97,000 ships, trying to come up with some consistent way of being able to you know, look at the whole world in a rational way and then score a thousand different things in order to come up with a what looks like a simple green, amber, red um, flag, which is a, essentially a decision support tool. And then on the right-hand side of that continuum is really around a technology approach, you know, rather than a, a sort of a data approach, it's more of a technology approach. And the idea is that you've got highly trained people in your companies who... Their role is they spent years training on this stuff. Their gut feel is quite expensive to develop. And I think what we're trying to do is augment what already exists. So it's not a replacement. The idea is about decision support because it's more about augmented intelligence rather than artificial intelligence. People talk a lot about artificial intelligence as you know, a replacement technology, but actually I think it's a fantastic augmentation technology. And I think... The deliverable of that is not just the go, no, go recommendation. I think it's about the ability to work across an ecosystem and have some consistency so that what's been interesting to me in the last 16 months that I've been looking at this with Wynwood is um, looking at four different customer group types, insurance, chip owners, energy businesses, and global banks. What's interesting about those four different groups, I think, is the fact that Effectively, they all make up a big chunk of our ecosystem, of which insurance is a key part. Ship owners are obviously the key part. And 
I think what's interesting is if everybody is using the same baseline dynamic approach to risk. So we're looking at something like 40% of the world's oil goes past our platform now. 60, 70% of the world's ship, world's insured vessels go past our platform in some way. So with that in mind, I think over time, the idea is that you become a global standard and that at least everybody's looking at the same information. Because I think that's part of it. And maybe that's one of the outcomes of this is standards, is that we're all looking at the same thing. So it's easier to be able to share information, cross-check and verify the results of these kinds of screens. So I, th I think that's one of the key useful outcomes of this is that you don't end up with islands of information. You end up with something that's easier to verify quicker with with ship owners, for example, or, or from chartering teams in energy businesses, it makes life much simpler. So back, so back to you, Mike. What what resources and procedures do you have at, at North as a P&I club to help your ship owner members navigate sanctions compliance? Yeah, thanks. I, I guess all P&I clubs North invested heavily to help its members. We're a member-owned organisation. And first and foremost, that investment actually takes the form of a human resource, which is a dedicated sanctions advice team that's trained up, available to advise and guide members. And we do find that this very often helps members avoid high risk or questionable trades that keep them and the club safe. Of course, we also subscribe to software and intelligence tools, some of which are particularly focused on managing sanctions risk, others which can be applied to understand better the trade in, which in, in question. And this has always involved the use of vessel tracking of some sorts. Now, that this particular aspect, there's a lot talked about this, and obviously Ron's very much the expert here, but it's improved a huge amount over the last few years. And we supplement that raw, sort of raw information with hard evidence that we get from our correspondents, surveyors and lawyers. We literally do send out correspondents to have a look at ships. We do use them to check port lists and, and that sort of thing. Now, just coming back to AIS, because I think it's something that industry has been pushed towards, particularly by the recent US uh, advisories. Much is made of AIS monitoring, and it, and it very much has a big role to play. We have been using it since 2011 to track members from our, our point of view and also to assist our members in working out whether a vessel is what it says it is. But my plea here is that states have a greater awareness of its limitations. What it's really good at, and it's got better these days, particularly with um, products such as uh, that, that offered by Winwood, is identifying circumstances which require critical scrutiny. What it's not good at is providing the evidence that is necessary to break a contract, such as a charter party. It is, in essence, a collision avoidance system. It was never designed as a compliance tool. And if you're going to refuse an ostensibly legitimate order under a charter party, you really do need to know that the other guy is breaking the law. And what AIS does is simply point in the direction of suspicious activity, often very suspicious activity, but it's that gap between something which is really suspicious um, and actually you know, being pretty certain that the other guy is asking you to break sanctions. And that's the challenge in this particular area that, that, that we have. I think that's a really key point because one of the things that I've been working in that space around AIS since, I don't know, 16 years ago. And in, in 16 years ago, there was nothing to see on the screen. So you go from a blank screen to a global network and n no ships on the screen to 97,000 ships on the screen. So on one level, it's easy to get excited about it and think it's the answer to everything. But what I've discovered over the years is that 
the real power of AIS is when you build more context with AIS. So AIS, AIS is a great contextual tool, but it's a building block. And as Mike said, it's fantastic as a collision avoidance tool, but it needs extra strands of context in order to make it make sense. There's lots of noise in it. There's lots of duplication. It's based on VHF, which is 60-year-old technology. There's a lot to do in order to make it useful. And I think that's where having sophisticated fusion techniques where you take it as one strand and then add more strands to make it useful. So for example, a practical example would be you just started risking cargo, which is incredibly complex to model and add to AIS dynamically. So we're looking at the riskiest places in the world, the cargo data, so that you can start to add extra layers of context, which together then start to build a better profile of each vessel. So the idea is that if a ship goes dark, that you've got other strands to help it make sense. So they're not looking at things in and of themselves. You're trying to find supporting strands of extra sources of data that are not reliant on AIS alone. So, Ron, I see from various media posts that, that we would have, have put out there that you have an increasing number of ship owner clients in addition to the banks and the PNI clubs that you currently work with. So, in, in light of what Mike's been saying, what you've just said, what's instigated that increase uh, in utilization of your analytics from a ship owner perspective? And is their perspective different from the perspective that banks? energy companies is that they might have at the end of the day presumably the risk is that any one of them whether they be an insurance company an energy company a ship owner or a bank they can all be designated so are the risks different do they have a different perspective i think it's about timing because when you look at this advisory in may so two things happened earlier this year we worked with bp a lot since last year and then we announced that around the time of the new advisory, just coincidental. That was the first thing. And then after BP, we started working with other energy companies, global energy companies, oil traders. And the one thing they've got in common is tanker owners. As soon as the energy businesses and oil traders started refusing ships because they'd had unexplained activity, it may not be dark, by the way, it could be just unexplained and it just needs to be explained. But at least it gave them a, a common baseline to be able to say, can you explain what you were doing between these two dates? If it's innocent, fantastic. If it isn't, well, then they can take a view based on their individual risk profile, which differs from trader to energy business to insurance company. So I think in the last few weeks, weeks, months, we've signed up quite a few different ship owners in Norway and in Greece, particularly. And I it's no different. It's the same advisory. But I guess the issue is that it's just being able to demonstrate to the energy businesses that they rely on that their due diligence is at the same level as the energy business or the insurance company or whoever else in the ecosystem is also using us. So I think that's been the biggest driver. Have you, I mean, have you seen the perspective of your members change? I imagine there have been, there have been some high profile designations over the last 12, 24 months. Have you seen the perspective of your membership change? And if so, significantly? Yeah, I, I think undoubtedly the ship owners have been forced into this route. They've seen what's happened to friends, colleagues, other respected businesses. 
And I think the oil majors have always been a huge driver of change initially in the tanker industry. And a lot of, you know, if you look at a market like the Greek market, a number of big independent tanker operators also have, have significant dry bulk fees. So yes, everybody is is recognizing that they have to pay attention to this. Their customers are requiring them to do that and, and change is happening. It's, does it, I suppose what, what I struggle with a little bit is does, does it mean that they are less at risk of being designated? I don't know because it's getting quite complicated out there. And we do in, in P&I clubs come across sanctioned breaches which are state sponsored and, and they're quite complicated and they're, co- they're difficult to, to, to fathom out. The people behind these things are not, are not sitting up there and, and, and are open about it. They are very deliberately disguising what they're doing and these are sophisticated operations and they're difficult to to spot and they're they're equally familiar with the technologies available to those people who are trying to keep on the right side of the law so it's not an easy world and i think everybody has to move with the times everybody has to become more alert with this and, and ship owners have always been good at doing what's necessary to ensure they can continue to trade so yeah very much so so in light of that ron from your perspective the the, the windward platform there must be continuous product development in order to spot an ever-evolving mode of mode mode of operandi from the from the ship owners who perhaps are skirting with the risk yeah i think it's it just comes down to trying to stay ahead one of the biggest things is looking at the hull on its own looking at the vessel on its own is really gives you one strand and i think what we're trying to do is model everything else as much as we possibly can over time so modeling cargo risk i think is one of the biggest new things that we're doing because I haven't seen that approach before. I've obviously seen cargo related products before, but I've never seen it used as a building block of risk and things like how do you model out things like decarbonization and all sorts of other things that have an impact on, you know, the overall view of a ship owner, what's their approach, what's their mode of operating. And then how do you basically differentiate across all ship owners in a sector? So which ones are at the forefront and which ones are really pushing to do new things? And, and obviously ship owners are the ones that usually bear the brunt of the costs of lots of these initiatives. So it's been interesting to me in the last while working directly with ship owners to understand what they're up against and see how we can help. Understood. So the, of course, there is one question which, which I'm sure we can all imagine our listeners really want me to ask you both. And I'm going to start with Mike. Do you think that the maritime sanctions seascape will change with the upcoming change of administration within the White House? What do you think? You're assuming the president will change. I think the still live, isn't it? But yeah, it is. It is. Let's let's just assume that there will be a change of administration. <laughs> there's, there's there's a lot of there's yes. Look, there's a lot of speculation at present, and I think. I do think it's going to take time for any new change of policy or approach from a new administration to filter down into changes in in sanctions measures. If the US, and there's quite a lot of speculation about this, but if it does decide to re-engage with the JCPOA, I expect that the US will want to extract some significant concessions, guarantees even from Iran before there's any tangible relaxation in in the the sanctions program currently directed at the um, Iranian government and uh, state. And I'm not an expert in these things, but you know I do find it quite interesting to read. I think so. I'm, I'm focusing on Iran, so I think that's the most obvious area where we'll see change. 
because I think we're in many cases, in most cases, I think we're largely aligned with the rest of the US policy is largely aligned with the rest of the world, certainly the Western world. But if you, coming back to Iran, I'm not an expert in geopolitics, but it does seem to me that there's a number of key US allies in that region who are going to be quite uncomfortable with the US adopting a more conciliatory approach towards Iran. And there is a risk, I think, that in the closing, closing months of the Trump administration, that there will be an escalation of tension not necessarily from the Trump administration itself. We recently witnessed last week a very high-profile assassination, apparently state-sponsored, which the cumulative effect of such actions may reduce or even extinguish the opportunity for more dialogue between the US and Iran, and it may make confrontation more likely. So I think we're into quite an unstable period. I think also in a more general term that the, the UK and the EU will be watching and waiting. They will hope for a return to a more collaborative, unified foreign policy approach. But I personally would not underestimate the damage done to the trust between the US and its traditional allies over the last four years. Trumpism remains popular in the US. In four years' time, we will have another divisive US election, and there is every prospect of a a return to the policies and the approach that we've seen in the last four years. So... I'm I'm quite cautious about this. I think, like everybody else, we hope for a more joined-up, collaborative approach taken as regards sanctions programmes, but I don't think it's guaranteed. I don't think it'll happen overnight. I think ship owners and all of us in the maritime world just have to accept that it's going to be quite uncertain for the the short to medium term until things settle down and the direction of the new administration is clear for all to see. At the beginning of the Trump administration, obviously, Game of Thrones style, it was announced that sanctions are coming. By the sound of it, in your view, it's certainly not the case that sanctions are going. I mean, we're talking about a few sanctions around the edges, even if even on the most optimistic view of things. The US has had a big sanctions program against Iran for a long period of time. I don't see any change of policy elsewhere. The question on the most positive uh, view of this really is is how quickly the US realigns itself with the other parties to the JCPOA and re-engages in that process. And I don't think that will happen overnight. I think that will be quite difficult for the US to achieve politically, and they will need to see significant movement from Iran before that happens. Understood. Ron, with your with your interaction with energy companies and, and banks, do, do you see a, a differing view from Mike's view from their perspective? Or is it entirely consistent? No, we speak a lot with think tanks in Washington, and I've spoken at a couple of events for them in over the last year, say. And I think it's, it's interesting that Brexit is now number three on this news cycle. It's, it doesn't even make it into the top two of, of the news cycle. We're talking about America, and we're talking about um, the pandemic. But actually, in a month's time, You've got a completely different landscape in not just in the US, but the UK is on, in uncharted waters in, in a month's time. And I think with if it is President Biden, who, whoever the president is going to be, but if it is, let's assume it's President Biden, there's still a fairly major issue about Brexit and Northern Ireland and how it's even possible to make it happen. There's all sorts of other strands to, to consider with, with the US that are incredibly complex to deal with. And there's obviously a lot of people looking at that right now, particularly in, in the think tanks that we speak to. And that's going to have an impact on shipping. And the one thing I'd say is that from our discussions, it looks like sanctions don't tend to get retired easily. They can be added to, but they don't tend to get switched off very quickly. So I think there's been 
eight times more sanctions in the last two years or something like that than they have been in the previous couple of years. So that's a lot to deal with for all of the actors in the ecosystem, for, from service providers to the banks, insurance, energy businesses, and not least the ship owners to, to try and keep up with that. So I think it's just about building more robust business models that can stay ahead of that. It's been fantastic to, to talk to you both. We're coming to the end of our time for this podcast. It's been really very interesting. And on behalf of Shoreline, I'd like to thank you both for agreeing to participate. Perhaps just before we go, I could ask you each to summarize in a sentence or two how you see the maritime ecosystem evolving over the next few years in light of everything that we have discussed. Maybe start with Mike. Okay, let's be realistic. Sanctions are very much here to stay. They are a very effective foreign policy tool, and they tend to avoid putting soldiers at, at risk. So I think we're going to see a lot of use of these in the, in, the, in the future. And from our point of view in the maritime world, I think compliance and evasion is only going to become more complex. So as with any foreign policy tool or strategy or, or really quite aggressive tactic, the ways of getting around it will, and the defences towards it are going to become more sophisticated. So, you know, I think we're going to keep Ron in business for the foreseeable future. Good. And, uh, and Ron, your view? Yeah, I think I'd just go back to that point about operating during a, a pandemic. I think what's been interesting to me is looking at it like an innovation cycle. So part of what I do is I have to walk out a couple of years away from where we are now and try and figure out where we're going. What, what I found interesting about the last eight, nine months operating from my front room, along with everybody else in the country, is that it's made us much more resilient. The businesses that I speak to are clearly more resilient. And the, the innovation cycles that they've been going through themselves have, have also been amazingly resilient because they haven't just, they haven't just uh, sort of survived, but they've actually operated at, at a you know, very serious level. They haven't dropped anything. I think that's been amazing. I think there's a great research scientist called Alan Kay, and he says the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And I think that's the one thing that I really, as a principle, I think is powerful because I think if you partner with customers, particularly in times like this, where we're all in the same boat globally, we're in the same boat. And, it, and I think it's how you deal with uncertainty and survive, I think, is, is what makes the company. And it means that hopefully we'll be around for a long time and so will customers as a result. I certainly hope so. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to maybe revisiting this subject in, in a year's time to see how it might have changed. But thank you both again. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the latest instalment of Shoreline's Maritime Risk podcast series. We'd like to thank the show's sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited. The world and life at sea is changing on a daily basis. Shipping companies and owners are facing evolving threats from political risk to increased maritime cyber risk. Shoreline has the maritime insurance answers you need to make sure your company is covered when crisis strikes. Shoreline are providers of specialist maritime cybercrime and crisis response insurance policies. To learn more about these specialist covers, visit www.shoreline.com.
shoreline.bm today.